The road to finding answers in the Oakland County child killer case has been a long, winding, and at times, let's be honest, pretty much all the time, very frustrating one. It's had a lot of twists and turns, it's had a lot of ups and downs, but it's never had a DNA match to the case. Until now. I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County, and today we're finally going to get perhaps a breakthrough that we've been waiting for for so many years. Before we get to our DNA match here, I think we've got to talk about the cast of characters that surround this whole thing, because in many ways, the kind of circumstances and events that transpire around this, I think, are just as important to discuss as the thing itself. The major players in this task force, of course, we've got Corey Williams, who's back on the task force. He's with Livonia Police. We've also got, at this point in time, Gary Gray, who's the Michigan State Police sort of equivalent of Corey Williams, and they're doing a lot of the investigation at this point in time. We've also got Jessica Cooper, who was the newly elected at the time prosecutor of Oakland County. So she is also on the task force. We also have Kim Worthy, who's the Wayne County prosecutor, so sort of Jessica Cooper's peer in Wayne County. Of course, as I've been over before, because Tim King's body was found in Wayne County, that gives Livonia police, because it was in Livonia and Wayne County, uh, you know, jurisdiction, rights on whatever task force, etc., etc. Now, Kim Worthy, as best I can tell, is pretty universally respected, I would say, within the law community. That's what I've been able to find through my research, through my reading. Kim Worthy uh, was a victim of a violent crime while in law school at Notre Dame, uh, and she used this as part of her other experiences and other things to kind of propel her forward into the position that she then found herself as prosecuting attorney of Wayne County. She found thousands and thousands of rape kits that hadn't been processed in Detroit, and worked on prosecuting those. Um, so, you know, as best I can tell, kind of someone who is on the up and up and respected within the community. However, for the newly elected Jessica Cooper, this doesn't quite seem to be the case. Jessica Cooper served as a judge for in various capacities for very many years, uh, but she didn't always have the squeakiest clean time, it doesn't seem. People did not like the way that she was uh, kind of doing her thing. So, quoting from the Snow Killings here from Marnie Rich Keenan, quote, During her time on the bench, attorneys whose cases came before her filed several grievances against her with the State Judicial Tenure Commission, variously describing her as rude, arrogant, and unaccommodating. I'm going to skip ahead here, but still quote from the Snow Killings. Where the press was once free to contact any of those dozen assistant prosecutors, Cooper had designated only one person, Paul Walton, her acting deputy chief, to serve as media gatekeeper. As a candidate seeking re-election in 2016, Cooper came under heightened scrutiny for appearing to skirt a series of U.S. Supreme Court rulings that banned states from sentencing juvenile offenders to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of that quote there, but in essence, uh, there was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling retroactively applied that said, hey, we can rehabilitate juvenile defenders, and if we, we, if we just sentence them to life, that's cruel and unusual punishment. So go back and review these sorts of sentences and maybe revise them. So, uh, quote here, quote, 2,600 juveniles in prison for life across the country, 1,700 had been resentenced. 
So, you know, you can take that percentage there. That's a very significant percentage. Uh, but Jessica Cooper decides of the 48 people sentenced to life in Oakland County that she's only going to uh, reduce the sentences of five of them. So that's part of it. Of course, that's in 2016. That's later. But I just wanted to pr uh, provide a picture of Jessica Cooper, kind of what's going on there, uh, perhaps. Even though that juvenile stuff doesn't come up until later, Marty Richkina includes it in her book, and I think it's a good point to mention it here just because, look, you're getting a view into kind of what Jessica Cooper, what's in her mind, how she's making decisions as a prosecutor. So this is the backdrop that we find ourselves in during a March 2009 meeting of the task force with all the key players there. Now, in this meeting, things seem to be pretty good, pretty cordial. There's no issues of any kind. And they're reviewing and talking about DNA evidence that they found on one of the bodies, as well as they got a warrant for the old Bush household in Birmingham, and they're vacuuming the air ducts. They're trying to get DNA from the house, even though the occupants have changed. And, of course, Chris Bush died so many years previously. So they're talking about this. They're talking about, okay, let's try and mount this sort of DNA push that might be key to this case going forward. Let's see uh, what all this stuff results in. So just keep that back in your mind, the characters, what we got going on here. The things maybe brewing in the background, the personality conflicts that, look, I'm foreshadowing it, we're going to get into. But in this meeting in March 2009, they're going over a couple things. They vacuumed the Bush household, even though it had changed uh, occupants. They're like shop vacuuming the whole place, just sucking up carpet fibers and trying to find hairs in the air ducts and all this stuff to see maybe if there's some DNA from all those years ago that's still around. It seems like a long shot, and indeed it is. None of those hairs come back uh, as belonging to people. They just find like animal hairs, carpet fibers, that kind of stuff. But they test a hair from one of the bodies, and they get what's called a mitochondrial DNA match. Now, I think I could do an let's say, an okay job of explaining DNA and what it is, but I wanted to really get someone who knows what they're talking about so we could discuss DNA, how it factors into this case, just what DNA is. So I brought in Dr. David Ferran, who's a forensic expert. I'll let him introduce himself really quick here and get into what DNA even is before we move on to mitochondrial DNA, this other kind of DNA testing, what's found in this case. I think it's just important for us to understand what the heck is DNA anyway, and how does it differ from shows and what we see on TV? PhD from the University of Michigan in molecular genetics several years ago, and currently I'm a professor at Michigan State University. Uh, Michigan State has the oldest forensic science program in the country, uh, and I've been here for about 18 or 19 years. Uh, I direct forensic biology. So basically, I'm a DNA person working in forensic science. Uh, we do research along those lines. So a lot of research on better ways to get DNA results from bad remains, poor quality remains. Uh, and I teach graduate students who mostly go, go on to work in crime laboratories uh, and otherwise kind of do forensic DNA work. So you can see why I was so excited to have Dr. Ferran on the podcast. And let's just listen to him explain to us before we get into the weeds what DNA is. Okay, so DNA is a genetic material that makes us us. Uh, it's a rather kind of simple but molecule. Uh, it has four building blocks, which might become important later on, uh, which are abbreviated A, G, C, and T. 
And it's the order of those blocks, just like the order of numbers in a phone number or something that makes every phone unique. The order of those building blocks, A, G, C, and T, and DNA, makes all of us unique, except identical twins, because they have the exact same order. Uh, it's found in basically every cell in your body, uh, identically for the most part. Uh, the exception is red blood cells. They don't have any DNA, uh, but all the other cells do. And so a sample from uh, your finger is going to be the same as a sample from your toe or as a sample from your white blood cells or any other material. So the nice thing about that for D or forensic testing is that if we have a, say, blood stain uh, on a carpet, we don't have to get blood from an individual to test that DNA to see if it came from that individual. We can get what we typically call a buckle swab or just a little cheek swab with a Q-tip inside the cheek and compare that and it will be identical if that blood didn't, did indeed come from that individual. Uh, so that allows forensic testing to work really well because we can take a suspect once we have one and collect a simple sample from them and say, did uh, this question material, this evidence material come from that suspect or that victim, if that's the case. So now that we have a good idea of who it is, I know you're dying to know, who is this a DNA match to? This could lock the killer up, finally, finally, we've done it. We have a DNA match to a body. That's what the police uh, are figuring out and what they're not telling the public. I'm going to get into that whole thing. But who is the DNA a match to? It's a match to a man by the name of James Vincent Gunnels. A hair found on the jacket of Christine Mihalik is a match to James Vincent Gunnels. Now, you're probably saying, what? This isn't Lamborghini or Norberg or Chris Bush or Greg Green? Who is this James Vincent Gunnels guy? This is where the plot thickens because James Vincent Gunnels was only 15 at the time of the killings. And he was one of the people who brought that lawsuit against Christopher Bush and Gregory Green for being raped by them. In a weird twist of fate and just something that's just tragic to me, James Vincent Gunnels still hangs out at that time when he's 15 with Greg Green and Chris Bush, despite being raped by them, despite these things, despite being abused. They groom him in such a way. I mean, it's just, it's sickening. They groom him and he still hangs out with them, despite being brutally raped. And I struggle to say that's of his own accord. I mean, they're not, you know, like threatening him at gunpoint to go with him, though. He is like hanging out with them to a certain extent of his own accord, but, you know, he's just warped and things are just so terrible by, you know, the abusers of him that he still uh, associates, hangs out with Christopher Bush and Gregory Green. So these DNA results are finally back from Quantico, and really it was Corey Williams pushing these DNA, pushing Michigan State Police to have this DNA tested. That's kind of why he was kicked off the task force the first time, but we've got this now, this mitochondrial DNA match off of a hair from Christine Mihalik's jacket. Now, what does this mean? What is the hair DNA match? What's mitochondrial DNA? Of course, Dr. Ferran here to educate us all. Now, there is another small amount of DNA in each cell that is not really unique to each individual, but it can be informative, and that's called mitochondrial DNA. So mitochondria are the little energy producers of each cell. They're a small little organelle that are in all your cells, and they produce the energy, and without them, you don't live very long. So if anything affects them, it's bad. Uh, they, for evolutionary reasons, have their own little bit of DNA. And it's a tiny amount of DNA compared to what's in the nucleus. 
um, instead of 22 chromosomes, they have one small circular piece of DNA. That's, again, a tiny fraction of your total DNA in each cell. What's unique about mitochondrial DNA, uh, there's a few things that are unique about it. One is that it's pretty tough. So the nucleus uh, is not a very strong organelle in your cells, and it breaks down pretty easily. Uh, and the DNA inside it breaks down pretty easily. On the other hand, the mitochondria is this kind of tough little organelle that, that can stand up to a lot more mm, whatever, uh, can stand up to a lot more abuse. And it's that means that its little piece of DNA can be found in tissues that have long lost all their nuclear DNA. Uh, but again, it's not unique. Mitochondrial DNA is not unique. And that's because it's inherited by the egg. So you inherited your mitochondrial DNA and all your cells from your mother. And she inherited it from her mother and from her mother and on and on. So if we, like my, for myself, for instance, I have three siblings. All of us inherited the same mitochondrial DNA from our mother. Uh, and so all of our mitochondrial DNA would be the same. And then uh, if my sisters passed it on to their children, uh, that would be the same as well. Uh, males cannot pass it on. So I myself would be irrelevant mitochondrially. Uh, and it's very useful for that because we can use it to identify, potentially identify distant relatives. And it's used a lot by the armed forces. That's probably who uses mitochondrial DNA testing the most to identify remains from previous wars. So they started doing that for the Vietnam War uh, after remains started you know, showing up now and then uh, from old burials in South or North Vietnam. Uh, and they would use mitochondrial DNA. If they had an idea who the person might be, they could go to a distant relative, a maternal relative, be it a sibling or a cousin on the mom's side or a second cousin on the mom's side, it'd be quite distant, but they would have the same mitochondrial DNA and they could say, does that match up with these often skeletal remains that we have from the Vietnam War? So the armed forces use it a lot to help make identifications. But again, it's, it's not unique. So it's not a unique identifier uh, because we share it with other individuals. So the most, in, in Caucasians, for instance, the most common mitochondrial DNA type uh, occurs in about 5% of Caucasians. So one in 20 people, even if they're not directly related, have the same mitochondrial DNA. Uh, and I'm one of those, I'm one of that 5% for the most common type, uh, as are my siblings then, obviously. So it's not a unique identifier, but we can get it because of how tough that little mitochondria is we can get it from oftentimes very old remains or really poor quality remains. So they're really able to match it to James Vincent Gunnels, not because it's some kind of big uh, identifier right to him specifically, but because he was known, a known associate with Chris Bush and Greg Green. He was in the area. Let's see if it matches this guy sort of thing. So this is enough. It's not a slam dunk DNA, okay? This isn't like in the movies. Hey, we got a DNA match. We're putting them away because this isn't a nuclear DNA test, which Dr. Ferran can also explain, but essentially that's a significant, like this can only be you sort of testing, whereas, you know, he went over mitochondrial, much different. But this is enough for Michigan to say, hey, we're getting this guy back and we're bringing him back. So unfortunately for James Vincent Gunnels and unfortunately for all too understandable. After this childhood of a endless abuse, he doesn't turn out that well. He's in and out of the criminal system. And uh, so Corey Williams calls his parole officer who doesn't know where he is, James Vincent Gunnels. He's absconding from justice. I don't know where he is. 
So eventually they do find him out in Montana, which is where he is at the time, and they make him take a polygraph on this. However, he throws the polygraph. He shows signs of intentional deception, not that he failed the polygraph or passed the polygraph. He intentionally didn't pass the polygraph. He did that on purpose. Now, I wonder, why are you doing that if you don't have anything to hide? Why are you intentionally throwing a polygraph? Additionally, police say, Gunnels, look, if you take this polygraph and you pass the polygraph, just take it and pass it. You know, if you say you have nothing to hide, take it, pass it. We'll get you out of jail. We'll get you out on, on parole. He's in, he's in jail, I think, at this time for drug charges or something. And they're like, look, we'll get you out. Just pass the polygraph. And this has uh, vibes of Ted Lamborghini's deal where he was given like a sweetheart deal. Just tell us what you know and we'll give you a better sentence. And he says no and shuts down. And this is the same thing that's happening here with James Vincent Gunnels. That's certainly suspicious and it seems to line up with Jay Rubin's statement. If he had involvement in these crimes, I don't believe that he was a uh, murderer. Vince Gunnels was a teenager at the time and he was a he was a uh, victim of the child molester Christopher Bush and but he was a teenager and he rolled around with Christopher Bush and Greg Green and um, right. he, he knows something so at this point in time we've got all that stuff I talked about with Chris Bush and Greg Green and we have a DNA match not to them but with someone who definitely hung out with them and that guy is choosing to intentionally be deceptive towards police Certainly not a good look, and I think uh, perhaps even more damning of Chris Bush and Greg Green. Now, when he gets back to Michigan, they get him back to Michigan, and they kind of let him ice. They put him on ice in prison, really. They just kind of let him do his thing, and then they bring him back to take another polygraph. He agrees to take one without, quote, messing around, as he says. So here's the questions from that polygraph. Did you participate in any way in the killing of Christine Mihalik? Do you know for sure who killed Christine Mihalik? Did you have any physical contact with Christine Mihalik? Of course, we know his hair is on the body. So, you know, what's the deal here? Seems like some good questions to ask. So, the report from the polygraph from Lieutenant Robert Dijkstra of Michigan State Police, quote, completely failed in all aspects of said examination, end quote. Now, they've got nothing super hard tying James Vincent Gunnels to this crime. Polygraphs aren't admissible in court, and as Dr. Ferran went over, mitochondrial DNA isn't the smoking gun slam dunk that maybe we were led to believe it is in shows on TV and in that kind of stuff. So they've got to let James Vincent Gunnels go, and it seems like after this, he only goes by James. He used to go by Vince Gunnels up to that point, but he only goes by James now. So just an interesting little quirk. I circle back to as well, though, why didn't they interview the brother? Because if we're talking about the explanation of mitochondrial DNA, James Vincent Gunnels' brother also would have been a match for that DNA. Now, his brother is younger than him, and I already would have to say myself, I don't think that James Vincent Gunnels committed the killings himself, but I do think it's quite possible, perhaps probable, that Green, Christopher Bush did it, and then James Vincent Gunnels is wrapped up in him, you know, in with them, 
and he has to dump the bodies for them. You know, they kind of force him to do it, and oh, you're in with us now sort of thing. So I think that that's possible, but it does seem strange to me that they didn't go back and interview his younger brother, especially given what he says on the phone and the fact that the mitochondrial DNA would be a match. Let's listen to Dr. Ferran on this one. Um, yes, assuming they have the same biological mother, they should have identical mitochondrial DNA. Kathy Brode and Barry King are both calling Corey Williams. They're calling Oakland County. They're trying to get more information. They're not getting it. And finally, they tell Corey Williams, hey, you got to give us an update. We gave you this or we're going to go to the media. Now, a lot happens here. So Gary Gray and Corey Williams are in Georgia interviewing two suspects to try and rule them out of the case. And they ultimately do rule them out from being, you know, people who could have committed these murders. However, the devil's in the details. And this woman, Helen Dagner, is kind of a true crime blogger, kind of fascinated with true crime. And she urged the task force to invest this guy, his last name is Hastings, in the 90s. So he was administered a polygraph. Of course, we know the reliability of those. The polygraph did say he was being truthful when he denied it. But Dagner was like, hey, I think this is the guy. I think this is the guy. She's like talking with him and like getting together with this guy and all this kind of stuff. So she's writing about it. She's trying to tell police, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so Corey Williams, Gary Gray, they're down there. They're going to interview him. And Williams calls Dagner and is just like, look, I know you're writing on your blog. You're trying to get this notoriety. Is this stuff true? Like, is this a tr is this true stuff? And Dagner tells him, no, that was actually just pretty much made up. So, hey, that's, that's what we got here. So Williams interviews this suspect, and he, he says, hey, look, I was just pulling Dagner's leg. It was just fun. It was just a fun thing. I'm just obsessed with, like, true crime and serial killers. However, Dagner keeps writing on her blog over and over about how I was consulted by the police with a suspect and all this kind of stuff. And of course, this does not make the Oakland County Task Force very happy. So, Corey Williams is trying to say, hey, the King family is giving this, us this ultimatum. They really need updates. They said that they're going to go to the media if we don't provide updates. Now, so we've got two things happening here. We've got the King family threatening to go to the media. So, Corey Williams is like, hey, we probably should provide these guys with some updates. They brought us this lead. And so we've got that going on, to which Gary Gray says, they can't be smart, referring to the King family. They're attorneys. So I don't like to judge people based on, like, the worst thing that they've done or said. I think everyone has low points and moments that they regret. However, Gary Gray in that moment is, in my mind, despicable, deplorable, and really a lot of other words that you could use in that context. He's charged with investigating a brutal murder that had indelible effects on the community from years ago. And when a victim's family is inquiring about a lead that they provided to police, of course, the victim's families, they didn't commit these atrocities, okay? So I don't know why they're being left so out in the cold, uh, but that's the strategy here. You know, to which Gray responds, hey, they can't be smart because they're attorneys. I mean, that's just... Uh, you know, you're tasked with investigating this and to take a shot at, a, at the victim's family, at their character, at their intelligence. Um, you know, I, I think you can uh, make your own judgment on that one. So we have that going on. However, 
with that whole Dagner episode, Williams calling Dagner and just trying to get that more information, um, Gray is very upset, and he thinks that Williams is a leak, and so he's trying to get Williams removed from the task force entirely. That sounds familiar. Of course, we've been here before. He was removed from the task force previously. So Corey Williams, during this time, he's also moving to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office under Kim Worthy from Livonia Police. So we've got that whole thing happening, and we've got Gary Gray saying, he's leak, he's leaking, he's he's compromising the integrity of this investigation that you're doing so well, by the way. Um, but in any case, there's a meeting about this, and I'm going to quote here from the Snow Killings. Quote, in attendance at the meeting were Williams' bosses from Livonia, Deputy Chief Kurt Cade and Captain Mark LaBerge, Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, Chief of Investigations James Bivens, Michigan State Police Captain Harold Love, Gary Gray, and a young FBI agent newly assigned to the case, Sean Callahan. Gray seemed to be very impressed with Callahan, and because Callahan was once an assistant prosecuting attorney in Oakland County, Jessica Cooper had also taken a shine to him. End quote. Now, what's also important to note here is that our favorite resident polygrapher with loose lips, Larry Wasser, is also a very, very good friend of Jessica Cooper. So at any point when Larry Wasser is brought up in the investigation, there's reports even saying that Jessica Cooper couldn't even look at Corey Williams. I mean, that's that's just terrible. I get, okay, he's your friend, but like, this is a lead. You got to follow it. You got to, you can't, there's no, you're trying to solve an old murder that's going to be hard to solve anyway. There's no room for any of this kind of stuff. So I think you can see there that Corey Williams isn't exactly walking into a supportive environment that's going to give him a fair shot. So I'm going to quote here, and I want to take a moment to get this right. Quote, in the conference room, the meeting started professionally enough, but quickly turned contentious. Gray and Callahan charged that Williams should be removed from the case because he was a leak. The Livonia chiefs backed Williams, calling the leak claim ridiculous. Chief Cade accused the Michigan State Police of railroading Williams, insisting his detective was following proper investigative protocol by gathering as much information on a suspect as possible before conducting an interview. In a statement that would prove prophetic, Cade said, This is bullshit. You're just cutting him loose so you could run the ball into the end zone on your own. And look, just my personal opinion here, if this happened, if this went down like it is supposed to have gone down in the telling of the Snow Killings, I would have to say that that doesn't really pass the, the initial BS detector, right? It doesn't pass the smell test, I suppose you could say. And that's because... Uh, I don't, this, this Helen Dagner lady had been reporting this person as a tip in her true crime fervor, whatever, whatever she's doing, okay? So she's been reporting it as a tip since the 90s, and so Williams calls the person who puts in the tip while they're down there, you know, investigating, and to me that just, so that claim that he's a leak and he's leaking information, that just doesn't hold up for me personally, I, it just, it doesn't really compute, so... You know, make of this what you will, make your, you know, your own conclusions off of this, but that's my take. I was going to say long story short, but really long story long here, this is important, but Williams is ultimately kept on the task force by Michigan State Police Captain Harold Love. So that happens, but there's obviously major friction, major rifts, major schisms with uh, various elements 
of the task force that are at play here. And so after this, Gary Gray, he says, look, we're not talking to the victims' families. And there's a quote in there uh, from one of them that says, we don't let the tail wag the dog. Basically, like, we're not just going to acquiesce to everyone who wants something. So very hardline stance on that. But for whatever reason, Gary Gray decides to meet with Christine Mihalik's family. So he has them to the Michigan State Police headquarters, and he has these binders. I talked a little earlier, but it's got Bush, it's got Gunnels, and it's got Green. And so the Mihalik family, they don't, they don't really know these people, uh, and they had certainly never heard of the James Vincent Gunnels lead, and, and how would you? That The only people who know about this is the DNA, because the police because of the DNA test results. So they go through this meeting it's kind of like a dog and pony show of like look at all the pieces of paper we have we are working so hard look at our trees we have killed look at these pieces of paper I, I, it just seems to me like uh <laughs> if you have to put it to a, a different example it's like when you need to write a five page paper and you're like really using those filler words and you're adjusting the spacing on your essay to me that's that's kind of the vibe from this meeting and so the Mihalik family, Erica McAvoy, she, she's not uh, married at the time, so, uh, and I believe still married, so her last name is different. They call the King family because they're kind of like struggling to make heads and tails of this whole thing. And Barry King, he's incensed because they gave the police the Christopher Bush lead. They've heard absolutely nothing, and they didn't get a meeting. They didn't get any of this. So gauntlet thrown, you know, gloves are off, and... Barry King decides to go to the media, and he goes to Marnie Rich Keenan, of course, who later wrote The Snow Killings, for what would become major news and a front-page story in all of the Detroit area. The front page of the Detroit News, October 26, 2009, is all about Christopher Bush, the lead into the case, the other leads into the case, how things could have been messed up. I mean, it's pretty, uh, let's say, not complimentary to the police. There's a quote from Chris King, uh, brother of Timothy King in the article that says, quote, we've had the same, we've had the name since the fall of 07. They didn't even start to gather evidence until a year later, the fall of 08. And now they won't tell us what tests are done and what tests are not done or when those tests might be done. That's all we've asked for. We just want the truth to come out, end quote. Kathy King, who later Kathy Brode, her broad, uh, also releases a statement in essence saying, look, these guys have been dead for a while. What are you keeping secret? What telling us, how is that going to matter? The, the main suspects are dead. It happened, you know, 30 plus years ago. And she does say, uh, quote, the tired excuse of the lab is overwhelmed could be used indefinitely if we were willing to continue to accept it. We are no longer willing to be at the mercy of a system that thrives on delay and secrecy, end quote. So you can imagine front page news in the Detroit News. This is one of the two major papers in the city of Detroit. It serves Detroit and the whole metro community, millions and millions of people. You can imagine the Michigan State Police are in full damage control mode because this didn't fit what they wanted. This didn't fit what they were looking to do. And again, this is just me, this podcaster's opinion. Whether you think there was a cover up or not, which, you know, you can go either way on. I think that what is far uh, more agreeable to most people is that at minimum here, you have Michigan State Police, who had the first in the nation polygrapher unit way back when, and you had a Michigan State Police polygraph 
expert, supposedly, do this polygraph on Christopher Bush that he so blatantly failed, as was reviewed by experts later, uh, and so it was said that he passed. So, at minimum, if you're the Michigan State Police, you probably don't want that coming out. You probably don't want that coming out into the community. So look, forever children of Oakland County here, I'm not just using all secondary sources. We do our own research here. So I have a, I had a Freedom of Information Act request in with the Michigan State Police regarding a meeting. And there's a meeting the following day because the police, they're in all of this damage control mode. They're on the front page of the paper and they look really bad. I mean, they look really, really bad. So the next day, they're like, oh, let's let's have a meeting. Let's have a meeting with all the families at the Michigan State Police Outpost, uh, you know, to try and save face. I mean, this is just the absolute epitome of damage control. And so when I did a Freedom of Information Act request for the documents related to this meeting, I'll get more into those. But here are the people in attendance at the meeting. Captain Love, uh, Lieutenant Hill, Detective Sergeant Gray, Detective Sergeant Robertson. So this is actually, Detective Sergeant Robertson is the son of the original Robertson who led the task force in the 70s. FBI Sean Callahan, Deputy Chief of Livonia, retired Detective Sergeant Williams. So at this point, he's actually retired from Livonia Police and like is starting on uh, at Wayne County. Also, Kim Worthy, James Bivens, Rob Moran, Jessica Cooper, Paul Walton, John Skrzynski, hopefully I pronounced that. So really a who's who of who needs to be there. And what they discussed, supposedly according to this supplemental incident report, I'll read you a direct quote here from the Michigan State Department of Police Supplemental Incident Report 22, Original date, February 21st, 2008. Supplementary date, December 9th, 2009. I will read you directly, quote, Meeting finally rescheduled with the blank family. That's redacted. I believe it's the King family because the redaction is short and the other family's names are long. That's my assumption. Family regarding an update on the status of the case. People in attendance of the meeting. Uh, there's also, I read you the attendees from, in public offices, but there's also attendee 15, 16, 17, and 18. That's redacted. As far as I know, uh, that's two members of the King family and two members of the Mihalik family. That's as far as I know. Because it does say the two families, so the other ones were not there. The two families were updated on the status of the evidence of the case investigation. Question and answers to the ability within proper guidelines of the investigation. Status of Quantico's human hair analysis and Northville fiber lab evidence. Blank asked to be updated by December 1st. Now, look, if you take a look at any other accounts of this event, that that account is very brief, very short, and very non-descriptive. My Freedom of Information Act covered anything. That was anything in that meeting. And if you look at anyone who was in that meeting of the victims' families, they make no bones about it. Erica McAvoy says in the Children of the Snow documentary that it was a shit show. Uh, Kathy and, and Barry, they make similar remarks about how they felt like they were disrespected, not treated with respect that they were due, all sorts of things that just felt like left a bad taste in their mouth, like the police were stonewalling them again. This wasn't some sort of olive branch. This wasn't any real update. 
And things that come out later about this meeting, well, I would say that they illustrate it, okay? So during this meeting, the extenuating circumstances around when the victims were in there, there's a media firestorm. There's TV trucks, media, all parked outside this Michigan State uh, police outpost. As well as this, Jessica Cooper shows up to the meeting, and she did not know that the families were invited to the meeting. And she is absolutely livid. A quote here from the Snow Killings as well about this. Quote, As the participants began to take their seats, Detective Williams recalled, FBI agent Sean Callahan was in attack mode. Callahan pointed to Williams and asked Cooper, loud enough for everyone to hear, Is he going to be allowed to stay in here? End quote. However, she blames him and blames him for the Bush name being released to the Kings and all this kind of stuff saying, hey, you're a leak, right? Going on with that familiar theme. And this is because when Corey Williams found out who Christopher Bush was, he called Kathy King because Chris Bush lived very close to the King household. So he called her, wanted to know if, hey, did the killer know the victim? And he said to her, did you go to school with someone last name Bush? And she said no. So from there, the King family, they were able to figure it out on their own. So you can see a theme here. They're saying, one side saying leak, and one side is, uh, you know, investigating, at least in this podcaster's opinion. So this is all happening before, before the, the victim's families even come into the room. So there's all this infighting and all this stuff going on. Barry King says about the meeting, quote, Finally, I asked who the decision makers were. That was the only question answered at the meeting. One of the prosecutors said, the police. And one of the police officers said, the prosecutors. End quote. I tried to give the police their fair shake here because the only account that I can find is that of Corey Williams, who's not the biggest fan of the Michigan State Police, and also that of the King family and the other victims' families. And I, look, I did the FOIA request. Give me the transcript, what was said, and... They either don't have it or chose not to release it because my FOIA request was only granted in part. And then they gave me a very long list of reasons why they weren't going to give me any more information. So right about this time, the victims' families are all meeting for the first time. Barry King invites them over to his house, and they take stock of everything that they know. So let's take stock of everything that we know. We know a little bit more that they're going to find out due to something I'll get into in a second. However... They're getting together, and they are disturbed by this Christopher Bush revelation because, look, what you have here is Christopher Bush, the chief suspect in their minds at this point. He failed the polygraph. They said he passed the polygraph. That's suspicious. This suicide on Christopher Bush, that was buried right away, not investigated as a homicide. Uh, and I'll give you a spoiler alert, still in the modern day, not investigated as a homicide. So they're disturbed by all these kinds of things. Here's a quote from Ashcroft, who is uh, one of the victim's family members. Quote, I feel like I've been violated and deceived. My theory has always been that police knew all along who committed these crimes and that they have just been pretending to investigate. Stebbins agreed, so this is Mike Stebbins, Mark Stebbins' brother. It's obvious to me that if the police admit this is the guy that did it, then they have to admit they blew it long ago when at least one of the kids could have been saved because end quote because if you remember christopher bush was a suspect in the in these murders and was interviewed before tim king ever went missing so did police perhaps miss their chance to put the oakland county child killer behind bars when bloodshed 
could have, you know, not been shed. We could have saved a child out there. And let's listen to J. Ruben Appleman and if he thinks the case will ever be solved given some of these developments. Is it ever going to be publicly known, by the, said by the police or whatever? Anybody looking at this case from the outside coming in kind of can tell what's going on with this case. Will the police ever say anything officially? I don't know, man, because if they do, they're going to have to unravel all kinds of mistakes and cover-ups and lies and political favors and all of that stuff in order to explain how they now come to say, yeah, yeah, what you've known all along, public, we're going to admit to that now. And a last twist of the knife here by Oakland County and these other investigative agencies, Jessica Cooper sends a letter, which I have read, dated November 13th, 2009. This is right after this October meeting that they had. Uh, and so she writes, Barry King, and this, this letter, look, I'm not going to read it in its entirety, uh, but essentially she explains the role of a prosecuting attorney in a prosecutor's office. And it's very uh, kind of explain like I'm five sort of explanation. I just, uh, if someone has no knowledge of the law system and that they're, you know, just confused over something, sure, I guess this might work. But Barry King's an attorney. His kid's an attorney. Like, this is not a dumb man. And he's being treated as such by Jessica Cooper, in my opinion. You can go read this book, uh, read this yourself in The Snow Killings. Look, I know I'm plugging this book a lot, but it's a fantastic book, fantastic resource. It, I'm not a sponsor, but Marnie Rich Keenan did a great job with the book. So that's just a very pedantic letter. You can also probably find the, the uh, letter on Kathy King's blog as well. So look, Barry King's insulted after this, and he decides to bring a lawsuit against the Michigan State Police and the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office saying, hey, give me the Bush files because I think someone is, uh, you know, covering some stuff up here. The short story here is his FOIA lawsuits go to many courts, many appeals, etc., etc. His FOIA lawsuit against Oakland County doesn't get very far, but his Michigan State Police one does much better. And so he gets a lot of documents from that. Now, if you don't know, Freedom of Information Act requests, you can make them against pretty much any government agency. And there are some of them, those requests, they might be able to grant you. But let's say if you are trying to get something like your city budget, if it's not publicly posted or something, you know, you can ask for those kinds of things under Freedom of Information Act requests or email correspondence between people talking about the firing of a college professor or something like that. There are things you can request under FOIA and... Oftentimes, it's very costly because someone has to go look for those records, retrieve those records, see if those records exist. So it costs time, effort, money, etc. And the bill for that goes to the person requesting the documents. So oftentimes, Freedom of Information Act requests can get extremely expensive. And oftentimes, they can get expensive and not give you the information that you want because they're going to spend all this time and effort trying to find documents under the Freedom of Information Act request uh, that you submitted, and maybe those documents don't exist. Well, they still invested time, effort, money, etc., trying to find them. So that's the risk you run with Freedom of Information Act requests. So Barry King, the documents he gets him, he gets a lot of documents, but it costs him, on top of all the legal fees, it costs him $11,000. Someone asked him if he thought that it was worth it for these $11,000. King replied, it was Tim's college money. So that's one of the saddest things I had read. When I uh, read that quote, I just about cried. 
This man's trying to do everything to find who killed his kid, and he thinks that the police are really working against him. Certainly a sobering thing to read, and I think an important point to stop and reflect for us. As listeners, these people, they're people. They're not, you know, characters in a book. This isn't a movie. These are people just like you and me, which is what motivated me to start this whole podcast in the first place. Now, what's in those documents I've talked about a little bit already, but there's more to it. And there's more DNA matches that just might enter someone else into the equation or perhaps implicate people we already know. But that's for next week. I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County. We're reaching our conclusion here, and I hope that you'll join me to debrief and discuss, perhaps, who the Oakland County child killer actually is. Yeah, he's calling the police saying, I'm going to be working late, don't bother coming into my shop. And then that night, and he's a convicted, uh, he's, he's uh, uh, out, on, out on probation at that point, but he had already had uh, uh, criminal sexual conduct charges against him and stuff. So he's a convicted uh, sex offender who calls the police and says, hey, my lights in my shop are going to be on tonight. Don't bother coming by. That night, Mark Stebbins goes missing. And years later, they find out that DNA from one of the cars is a match to, to the body. And like, what? And they don't put no charges on this guy? So, man, like anybody looking at this case, here's the answer to your question. I don't think they're doing anything. And that really frustrates me. Vince Gunnels, you have to say, who's he protecting? The Forever Children of Oakland County is a podcast produced, written, and done entirely by me, Eddie White, out of a burning desire to see these cases solved and a love for my community. This was not free to make. And if you want to support the show, you can do so at anchor.fm slash eddie-white4 slash support. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash E-D-D-I-E dash W-H-I-T-E 4 slash support.